Hey, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Dollar Bin Bandits, the only podcast with old friends discussing old comics with the people that created them. Uh, I'm Joe Marcello, joined as always by my partners in crime, Orrin Phillips. Good evening. And Mike Farah. Hello. So listen up, everyone. We have a comic book legend this week. Uh, it, it was uh, a long time in the making. You know, schedules in the summertime get a little hard to coordinate, uh, and ours certainly did. So we've been working on this one for a while. Uh, we had a chance to sit down and talk to none other than comic book legend Chris Claremont. Um, words really can't express how just so much fun and interesting he was to talk to. Um, I'm going to say he was, you know, almost the, like the Kevin Smith of our podcast, because we really didn't even have a chance to intro ourselves the way we normally do. We asked him a couple of questions and the man just talked. I think, you know, in, in comics sometimes or anything, the leg- word legend gets thrown around a bit, but it, it definitely, uh, certainly fits Chris Claremont. Where would so many of us be without his writing his work? And you know, we were all kind of like, what's it going to be like? You know, this is one of the biggest names we ever talked to. You couldn't have asked for a nicer person who just easy to talk to, had so many stories to tell. This was an absolute, absolute joy to, uh, to be a part of. I like to call him the philosopher king of comics because Chris really... I mean, he was digging deep inside his own sort of psyche and the just general... Um, uh, themes of comics and and just coming up with why you know what his philosophy on comics are and the x-men and really kind of giving you the straight dope on that and um and he gets you know he gets deep into this stuff it's not just sort of surface level who's your favorite uh character or why did you do this that way or this the other way um so uh, it was fascinating to hear his thought process. And uh, like we've said, um, really barely needed any prompting and was uh, just going from story to story. Um, so uh, we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. So years ago, um, many, many, many years ago, Jeanette Kahn, who was running DC Comics, is in um, <clears throat> London for a convention. And while she's going out to dinner with editors suddenly the phone rings the car phone and she answers and it's um steve ross the multi-billionaire head of of time warner who at that time sadly was dying of cancer Mm. but he's calling her anyway because he'd just seen picked up the newsweek and time and the times and the la times all headlining the death of superman and it's like his basic question was what the Dickens you can submit, you can replace that with any other word you like. Uh, And Jeanette, you know, tells everybody she can't make dinner. She'll get back to them as soon as she can and goes home. And she and Steve have a long conversation, you know, bearing in mind that he's nine and a half hours away in LA and, you know, not in the best. So she's saying, but Steve, you have to understand this is comics, nothing, you know, we're just doing a story. And his point is, why didn't you tell us? And she said, we're comics. We are like 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of Time Warner's 
budget, much less its income, we didn't think anybody would care. And his point was, do you not understand Superman is an utterly significant global asset of Time Warner Communications? All you have to do is look at the news coverage of the last 72 hours. Mm-hmm. You have, when you're dealing with stuff like this, let us know. We don't care what you're doing, except to extremes, but you have to let the big people know. Right. So it, it, it was such, that was like a primal lesson to the, the troops of the, the position and, and stature of the toys they're playing with. You know, that you cannot, you cannot treat the stuff as casually in, in a global communication sense as we are used to doing. Um, which is a lesson that none of, I don't think anybody in comics really thought of before because, you know, DC is on one level, Marvel outside of, of actual sales is on a lesser level, you know, gradually clawing its way up. Right. You know, um, you know, the, the same thing happened 20 plus years ago where Fox's attitude was, Hey, you know, blade made $10 punisher made 1150 X-Men should make seven. And of course, you know, we opened it at 99.3.5 weekend, you know, just an inch below, a quarter inch below $100 million, which A, in and of itself is, was a phenomenal thing. But B, for a superhero film, it was like, huh, start off the 21st century with a bang. And that, of course, led to Spider-Man from Fox, which of course led to uh, Iron Man from that small little company, Marvel Studios, which nobody would ever heard of. And suddenly, you know, we end up with end well, with Endgame at what four point three billion, yeah, all the counting money in part one. Yeah, I mean, if you think, if you think of the opening month, that month, two years. Uh, in 18, back when people actually went to the movies and there were no streaming services. Ah, and we were all <laughs> crying at the theater. Hmm? When we were all crying at the theater at the end of that movie. <laughs> well, just imagine what would have happened to Star Wars if they'd had streaming services. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you wouldn't have people standing in, in queue for three and a half days just to get in to see you know, a two hour movie, but but the point was in, at that, in that four week period, you had Captain Marvel at 1.6, you had uh, Spider-Man at one point. Oh no, sorry. Captain Marvel at 1.6 end game at three point. Who cares? The end of the two weeks later, you had Spider-Man at 1.7 or eight. Oh, and in the middle you had, uh, Dark Phoenix at 300 mil, right. which used to be a respectable number, but in that particular month with those four Marvel movies, it was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> but that just shows you the, the 
cumulative impact of, of the Marvel canon done right. Um, you know, just imagine. You know, be interesting, but that's why it'll be interesting to see what the next four months will be like when you've got three significant Marvel films coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a in a world of leave it on the screen for three weeks and um, go to go to um, streaming services, yeah. which, as I babble on incessantly as I want to do, was almost predicated. 70 years, 60 years ago by Robert Heinlein in a novel of his where the the protagonist is an actor who's drafted because he's the, he is the twin. You may remember this film uh, from the 70s with Sigourney Weaver and um, where actors hired to play the president, the president's had a stroke and he turns out to be really good at the job and Dave? revolutionary. Is it called Dave? Dave, thank you. Yeah. Really nice film. Mm-hmm. But the same thing, but the, the Heinlein's perception is the same thing. The, the president of the Federation is killed. Mm-hmm. This, this actor is drafted because he's a, an identical twin to take the place. And over the course of the film, of the book, sorry, he grows into the role and becomes the president that everybody wanted wanted in the first place, the, the idealist. But the interesting thing is, from, from this perspective, he is a really good actor, but nobody goes to the theater anymore. No, you know, what you do is he he's just done this really great Shakespeare. He's done 40 performances. Then they 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 basically tape the production, and he's digitized, and that's it. Hmm. You know, it's it. Nothing is live. Everything is is. Then we'd have said on tape. Now we'd say digital, right? And that's the the interesting challenge of today, both in terms of how how films will be produced. And and the impact on the performers in those films. Uh, the Times had a Sunday Times magazine cover story with uh, Matt Damon, where he was lamenting that that the kind of film that is his favorite, that is creatively his bread and butter, a sixty million dollar cool action or character piece doesn't exist anymore because. Nobody, no studio will invest in it and no theater will show it. Everyone wants to do a nine figure blockbuster, a a superhero movie, because that's the only thing that will bring in a global audience and everybody's shooting for the global audience. And um, it will be interesting to see where that goes, which takes us back to the original point about the, 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 the discussion between Disney and Scarlett Johansson, where will that end up? Will it, will bean counters manage to rein in the cost, the creative cost of hiring actors or will sometime down the line, like next month or next year or whatever, 
another studio discover the hot actor of the year, the new whatever, the new James Bond, let's say, mm-hmm. and figure, no, no, we want this guy or this gal. We'll pay them serious money, and we're we're back into the arms race again. It's it's the same sort of thing. If a studio, if a if a company invests in the star writer, or in my history, the star artist who wants control over the product, and you you sacrifice A, B, and C to get that person, what do you do if six months later the person has a better idea or a better offer and leaves? You know, how do you how do you make peace with the audience? Right. Well, it's going to help them, I think, re- seriously rethink those agreements that they have with those artists because, you know, the work, all these uh, streaming services were in the works prior to the pandemic. And now then the pandemic happened and they were forced, I think, to speed up production of those services. So they had content out there, but they didn't account for the backend prop part of it. And now it affected, you know, like the profitability of those stars. Wouldn't it be interesting if you discovered that a tech person from one of the streaming services happened to be within spitting distance of Wuhan two years ago Uh, and thought, hmm, if we could eliminate movie theaters, we could have everything all to ourselves. But that's just melodrama. (laughs) That's a whole other movie right there. That's a whole, that's a James. Or a couple of, a couple of years of Avengers. Who knows? (laughs) um well i'm gonna jump right into our list of questions because (laughs) i'm gonna because we have i know you you want to be mindful of your time uh specifically but um i think we could actually talk to you for hours just hearing you speak and everything is just extremely interesting i do Um, 40 minute panels are real buzzkill <laughs> Are you kidding me? This is like the Kevin Smith of interviews because I just say one thing and you're just giving us all this information. No, I know, but it's it, that's the point. It's like I get one question at a panel. You know, I'll ask some questions and then we'll open it to the floor. And by the time we've gone through two questions, we're we're out of time. But <laughs> we, my wife as, says, "I to shut up." As fans, we adore that sort of thing. I think. But uh, so first and foremost, I, I would love to know how you got into comics. The, the smart ass answer is through the door. OK. <laughs> Good night, everybody. No. OK, the traditional the, the stock answer is true answer, which is back back in the day when I went to university, um, my school, Bard College, would shut down every spring from January from New Year's to March 1st for what was called field period, which was the the stated goal was that students would go out and get a job ideally in a in a field related to their uh, major. Our our belief as as actual students was it was just a cheap way of clearing out the campus for the coldest months of the year. So they'd save on heat. (laughs) We were a very small college with not much income. Uh, Not that much students either. But there you go. So we're talking January of 1969. My 
my major is a, mi- a dual major of political theory and acting. Uh, to come from a left-wing uh, anti-war drug college in the Northeast and get a job in Washington in 1969 in anything relating to politics or political theory, not a high, you know, not much, not much going on there um, on the positive side of the equation and not much likelihood to get a job with the, the newly admit, newly in uh, the new administration. So how about Broadway? Well, New York. Yeah, not a lot going on in theater in, in January, especially in 1969. So that left me with my third interest, which is writing. My parents had a friend. A fa- we had a family friend, Al Jaffe. You may have heard of him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I thought, I love that magazine. Maybe Al could get me a job with them. That would be cool. And apparently Al called my parents and said, there is no way in hell I'm getting a job, getting Chris a job at Mad Magazine. Do you know what we do there? <laughs> because the way Mad worked was everybody went over to Bill Gaines' house and just basically made up each issue as it came along. And the behavior of grown men in that situation was apparently adventurous. <laughs> and the actual office was, a, you know, like uh, a half dozen secretaries just sending stuff in out, you know, keeping track of all the, uh, all the mail and, and, you know, pasting things together. So not really much going on for a, a scrappy young intern. So Al says to my folks, is he at all interested in comic books? Because I have a friend and I could get him, probably get him a job, you know? And so I said, yeah, sure. And God, I've said this so many times. The next thing I know, the phone rings and I, at home and I answer it. Hey there, true believer, this is Stanley. And I what? thought, what the f- <laughs> <laughs> Stan may, knew how to make an entrance even then. <laughs> so he went on to, to say, I'm really sorry. We're a really small, poor company. We can't afford to hire anybody, especially for only two months. And I said, well, sir. Uh, actually, I'm doing this for college credit. I'm not allowed to ask for wages. You're hired. <laughs> Nothing like being for free will uh, to get you a job, especially Just what they want to hear. Right. It's been, oh Christ. Ugh. It's been better than 50 years and the policy is still very popular. Sorry. <laughs> Every so often, I, I look at the number and I, I bail. I pale. Um, so that was it. I came in in January, uh, walked in the door, discovered I was the only one wearing a tie and jacket. So I got rid of that by the next day. <laughs> and John Verporten, who is this giant of a human being, I mean, like, seemed from my perspective, seven feet tall and about five feet wide. He made Volstag look like a midget. And he ran the shop. He was the production manager. Um, you know, it's this tiny little office on 61st Street in Madison. And you had the production department over on the left side of the hall, the only hall, um, with stat machines and, and 
printers and everything. And then you had editorial on the right, which in those days was John Romita, Herb Trimpey, uh, Marie Severin, and Frank Giacoya. I mean, that was the bullpen. These are the people you went to for corrections. I mean, it's like, huh, really? Yeah, really. In 1907, you know, 69, that was it. And then at the end of the hall, you had Roy Thomas sharing the office with the business manager. Tony Moore. Anyway, and then on the other side of the hall, you had the only office with the door, which was Stan's. And that was it. You know, maybe a dozen, 15 people. And we did it. We did everything. And so the first time I was, the first minute, day I was there, they gave me stuff to proofread, you know, letters to answer. Um, I just fit into the mix. And uh, the rest, as I say, is history. That's amazing. It was ever that small. I I can't even imagine uh, a place like Marvel being, you know, that, um, that contained into many offices yeah but think about it i mean stan aside from co-creating just about everything wrote a huge chunk of it Mm -hmm. even then which is towards the end of his active presence in new york um it was just him and jack or you know steve and and um him and steve ditko it it was, it was crazy. Um, I was lucky enough to be there when, um, you know, when Roy and Neil's first issues of X-Men came in and that was just like, holy cow. But I was also there when the, the letters came in because we actually got physical letters in those days. Not, you know, there was none of this internet 150 characters slash somebody and move on reality. Um, When Roy and Neil's first issue of X-Men came out, we got letters from, from people who were fans of um, the previous art saying, how, how could, how dare you come change? Was it Werner Roth? Anyway, sorry. Change this artist, brilliant storytelling for this guy who just draws big hair and women smiling at each other. And I'm going, yeah, you mean women who look like people? You know, it's like, this is Neil Adams, idiot. And it was hysterical. I mean, and literally the week after the, we got the make ready, which are the printed copies without, without covers or anything, we got... Uh, the inks came in on the third issue and I got to proofread them. So I knew what was going on before anybody else <laughs> in, you know, not that there was a fan community to talk to back then. Cause I, that was all Len and Marv and uh, Paul Levitz, you know, which was a totally different, they were all, you know, on the DC side of the street because DC was a real company. Marvel was just, considered a joke and but being off the radar like that meant well sorry i'm rambling again but this is serious stan had three rules if he gave you a book 
get the book on time, in on time, do good work, and don't be a pain in my ass because I've, I've, I'm trying to save the company and you know I don't have time for foolishness. And from his point of view, any two out of those three, you kept the book. He'd prefer all three, but any two, you know, that's fine. And there was no editorial management in the traditional sense, whereas DC, you had five or six guys in suits who ran the Batman arc, who ran the Superman arc, who ran the Justice League arc. They were the bosses. You, you wrote books for them. You turned in books for them. You did what they were, what they told you. Um, Marvel was far more freewheeling, far more experimental, far more adventurous, and far more fun. Now, when you got Iron Man, was it the same attitude though? Were you allowed to sort of? I'm sorry, Iron Fist. Um, were you allowed to kind of write what you wanted, or I had Iron Man, <laughs> or, or there were sort of guidelines put on you as to this is the tone. No, I mean it. Well. A, it was four years later. Okay. We'd moved five blocks downtown mm -hmm. to our office, the offices on 56th and Madison. Um, and by that point, we had evolved towards an editor-in-chief management structure. Stan had moved out to the coast. Roy had run the shop for a while. Then he moved on and... The succession was, I think, Len took over, which is when I came in. Uh, and then after Len Marv, and then there was the month of 12 editors. Jerry Conway had the job for about three weeks. Uh, and then it was offered to Roy. And then they, we literally had a, a plaque on the wall with possible, you know, Who's the editor this week? And then we cross it out and move on. And eventually it, it ended up with Archie, which was a great thing. Mm. Um, and by this time I was back trying to build a career as an actor, yeah. but writing on the side. So I was doing a lot of uh, prose pieces for the black and whites, you know, because um, even then I'd done something like that back in 69, 69 with one pages like Nazis I have known and killed, women I have known and loved sort of thing. But again, bouncing back to the 69, the whole, this is what it's like. I'm sitting there and I'm reading Sergeant Fury, but I'm reading the, you know, from the beginning, but I'm also proofreading the latest issues to come in. So the latest issue to come in that month was Nick going home to Brooklyn where he meets his mom and his kid brother who grows up to become Scorpio, who at that point, um, Staranko was like building to with uh, Nick Fury. One small problem at the same time I was, as I said, I was reading the original books and I think around somewhere in the, in the teens is an issue entitled the court martial of Nick Fury, where whatever reason having to do with the howling commandos, Nick is put on trial and a character witness, a priest comes up and, well, you have to understand, sir, poor Nick Fury grew up in hell's kitchen. He's an orphan. I thought, huh? 
this doesn't work. Right. Orphan, family. Orphan in Hell's Kitchen, family in Brooklyn. This could be a problem. So I go to Roy, who's running the shop, and I say, Roy, we have a problem. And I explain to him, and Roy says, okay, call him. Call who? Stan. What do you mean? Call Stan. Tell him. <laughs> call Stan? So I pick up the phone. I, Mr. Lee, hey there, true believer, what do you want? And I explain to him, and okay, fix it. Click. <laughs> I'm sitting at the phone. Roy said, what did he, Roy says, what did he say? He said, fix it. Okay. Okay, what? You heard him. Fix it. What? Fix it. You know, I'm, I'm 18. You know? <laughs> I, I've been there for like a couple of three weeks and Roy's telling me to fix this. So I go back to my cubicle, you know, sit down, stare at it, stare at it, stare at it. And then, duh. Fury is, goes home to Brooklyn to meet, to, to visit his adopted family. It's amazing what a word can do to change the scope of everything. Because that instantly not only conformed to the court-martial, it put, it gave an absolutely relevant and justified or justifiable rationale for why Scorpio is Scorpio and why he and Nick are rivals. Uh, it's not that Nick's cool or whatever. It's because he's, he's not the fam- He's not family. He's an outsider. Right. So there you go. Um, but that's, I think for me, that was the first hint that maybe I know what I'm doing. Um, and so when I came back looking for work desperately after college, not fine, you know, doing some acting, doing some of this stuff, I started doing freelance stuff for Marvel, as I said, writing article, prose articles and small eight page uh, horror stories. As a matter of fact, there is one that I wrote and Tom Orzakowski lettered from 1973 that uh, was it drawn by well it still hasn't been turned in by the artists <laughs> the inker took it said I'll work on it when I don't have anything else to do and that was the last we saw of it <laughs> George Tusca was the pencil that's right sorry I'm on a time delay here um and so we just basically grabbed for whatever bits and pieces became available. And, um, you know, Larry Hama had created Luke Cage. And then I think after two issues, he'd moved on and uh, Tony Isabella took over for like two issues. And at the time, Tony was sort of my boss, which is interesting. So here we go, parenthetical aside. Because the last thing I did when I was one of my jobs as gopher, now they're known as interns, but then we were just gophers. I was just a gopher, was to deal with fan mail. And one of the fan mails, you know, when I left, I took a huge stack of fan mail with me because I kept running behind. And I answered them when I was back at school. 
And one of them was a, was a submission. And I said, dear Mr. Isabella, thank you for your submission. It, it was interesting, but I'm afraid it doesn't fit Marvel's needs at this time. Keep trying with, with whatever, respect, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. So cut ahead four years. I get a job as assistant editor, and you'll never guess who my editor is. Tony Isabella. <laughs> and you'll never guess what he put on my desk the first day. A plaque. You fired me, and now look where you are. Now you work for me. <laughs> See, you think Marvel fake, makes this stuff up? Fakes this stuff up? It's real life, dude. Um, half the things that happened to Peter Parker happened in the office first. So... Uh, Tony left and I got it and I did, we did two or me and was it Val Myrick? No. Anyway, because I just, oddly enough, it was the debut of, oh, never mind. I can't tell you anyway, because it it relates to something I'm working on now. God help us. Um, So I did, we did two, I did two or three issues in Marvel presents Marvel fanfare. I think hmm? was it fanfare fanfare. Yeah. I knew it wasn't two in one. We had a lot of, a lot of books predicated by Marvel. And then we went, we launched as a uh, solo series, but one of the things I'd been able to do in that, in that transition was persuade me and Roger Stern persuaded the, um, office to to hire this artist from canada john byrne and the rest as they say is history turned out pretty well and so obviously you are you know most well known for your humongous and legendary um run on x-men um <laughs> I yeah, if we're gonna try. I, I don't know how we can break new ground on on this subject. So uh, unfortunately, uh, you're probably going to be telling stories that you have already. Oh no! Uh, I, actually, I was thinking. You know, my favorite, my favorite evil, wicked thought is where this all ended up in back in the day was John went to Jim Shooter, who by then was running the shop and said, essentially he goes or I go because we'd gotten to the point where we were two alphas battling over the same piece of meat. And, um, you know, he was he didn't like what I did. I was totally oblivious. I just, you know, I knew who was in charge. <laughs> I just tell the stories I wanted to tell and John had had enough. So Jim, Jim's attitude was since I and Dave had gotten this thing off the ground in the first place after, well, I should say Len and Dave, and then I got this thing off the ground in the first place. um, I'd earned the right to stick around. So, so they ended up, he ended up giving John EFF instead. I keep fantasizing lately of, especially once John started doing, this is what I would have done if I'd stuck around on his website. Um, what if John had stayed and I'd gone? Because 
everything I contributed to the X-Men aside from Kitty came after that. And if I was doing the FF, if I was doing the FF, if I was taking all those characters and putting them into the general universe, that would mean Mystique and Sabretooth and, and Rogue and uh, um, uh, so many others. Well, no, no, was, uh, no. Um, Deathbird would all be mainstream characters. Uh, and what would the mainstream universe have been like if all of that had been part of, you know, the FF Avengers pantheon instead of the X pantheon? And where would the X pantheon have gone after that? It, it's just me being, you know. If only th- there's a what if for you. I was going to say. Can you yeah. put that in? Put that in 20 minutes. <laughs> Damn it. They should resurrect the title. If they haven't already, maybe they have. Um, no, I, well, actually, I did. I did a what, if, a what if years ago, which was what if Magneto and Charlie had stayed together okay. after they, they defeated Baron Strucker and rescued uh, Gabby Holler? Sorry, I'm on a like 30 second time delay in my brain. <laughs> um, and the old idea was we went on from the, you cut ahead 20 years and instead of the, the Xavier school for, in Salem, Salem center, you have the Vermont Academy, not even Vermont Academy. It's Vermont something or other up in, oddly enough, Vermont and Magneto's married Gabby. He's an advisor to, to everybody. He's a, he's, you know they're both they're 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 buds, uh, and so the X Men are. Kitty is is a kid working at the school. You know, young genius. She's Xavier's secretary. So that the, the X team at this point is Logan, uh, Mystique, Kitty, uh, Sage. Uh, occasionally Magneto. Um, and in the course of this, this one-off, um, Hank McCoy shows up as a doctor with his patient, who's this redhead, young redhead, Jean Grey, who's been in a coma for ever since she was a kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, every, everyone's given up on her but him, and he needs help. At the same time, uh, Xavier's friend from Moscow, the colonel in the, in the uh, what was the KGB and is now the GRU, comes in with his assistant, who he's loaning to the X Men for a while, Peter Rasputin, who used to be the significant other of the Black Widow. So that leads to a lot of jokes about Rasputins and Romanovs. <laughs> and, um, you know, and that was that was basically the X Men. By the time you get to the end of the story, and uh, the Hellfire Club is much nastier, and uh, Mister Sinister's team of operatives are Sabretooth, Cyclops, and uh, Havoc. So interesting. You know, it, I think it would have been fun. The thing, you know, um, I it's. I think it's always interesting to have Havoc as a antagonist or a well, brother. It was, 
of a protagonist? Well, it was one of those things where no one knew he existed until Roy and Neil invented him. You know, right. sort of like apparently there's a third Summers brother now. There was. We're we're uh, part of the know, Shiar. A mostly nostalgia based. <laughs> group well, I, here. I I read the Joe new may stuff. keep up with it a little bit more. I do, but I, I you know I'll be honest with you. After a while, it gets with all the restarts and reboots and whatnot. It gets a little bit confusing. So I don't know where things stand. I mean, I you know there's. Uh, how many versions of any one particular character? It's well, just I know. I, I just pe- I pick up track. You know, I take a look at the what's coming now, and I I see the title of the arc, and I'm thinking, didn't I do that like 35 years ago? I mean, it's bad enough you're swiping characters that I created. Are you going to swipe stories too? Jeez, no, no, it's a homage. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's what I love probably enough about Grant Morrison's new X Men is that like it or not, and I didn't like it. I just couldn't stop reading it because it's that good. It was that good. None of it, the only thing that was taken from existing canon was the School for Gifted Youngsters. Everything else, he he, he just, you know, yes, he had Gene, he had the Beast, he had Charlie, he had the core, but everything else was brand new and yeah, totally, totally wackadoo. Um, yeah. You know, if you've got Cassandra Nova, who Nova, who needs Magneto? And I thought this is brilliant. You know, it, it's that's for me as a reader, what I want is something that I may passionately disagree with conceptually, but I can't stop reading it because it's that good. And um, you know, it's that's the that's the challenge that to any writer who's create, you know trying to build something, find a way to reach the readers in, in a manner that they've never experienced before and see how far, how much you can get away with and how far you can go and have a good time along the way. Where do you come up with, uh, where do you get the inspiration or come up with the characters that you've created? I mean, without the characters that you've worked on or been a part of, we wouldn't have a lot of, the movies that we have today because of they were such great characters that they needed to be included. And sometimes two versions of the same movie, um, you know, we won't get into that. It's okay. Uh, But I mean, they're iconic. They're amazing. They're, I mean, it doesn't matter how many times they kill and bring someone back to life. They're still interesting characters. Well, I assume your movie reference was, to Jean Grey's having a really bad day that has nothing to do with anything called Phoenix. I will neither confirm nor deny that. A, it's the job. B, it's what I do. Someone says, where do you get your ideas? The stock answer is the idea bank in Poughkeepsie. Or, and that's by you, right? You should just, no. But, um, you know, you might as well ask Conan Doyle, where, where did Sherlock Holmes next villain come from? Or better yet, ask Bill Shakespeare, because we're in speaking terms. <laughs> you know, this guy from Stratford-on-Avon who has no apparent, you would figure, no apparent means of foundation for all the stuff he came up with. 
what the hell? I mean, either he's the most prolific imagination ever, which is certainly one possibility, um, or I don't know, he teleported back in time over from another dimension. If you, just the sonnets themselves are extraordinary, then you throw in the plays, holy cow. Not, not to imply that I'm even on the same continent as he is, but still, that's what writers, creators do. You know, you look at a blank canvas and you start, something comes to mind. You look at a blank page, you know, someone comes up to me at conventions and they just say, how do you, oh, sorry, conventions are these gatherings <laughs> that people familiar. would come right. to celebrate something. Got it. And then, heard of like, most of the people don't take showers when they go there and stuff, that's from what I hear. No. Yeah. <laughs> Been there, done that. So you've created obviously a ton of characters and, uh, you know, shout out again to the idea bank in Poughkeepsie open nine to five, seven days a week. Um, no, <laughs> trust me. I wish it was. <laughs> um, but you know, so with that many characters and that many influential characters, uh, a question I've always wanted to ask is whether there were one or two or even a handful that you feel like you created and really got the kernel of that character out there, but you just didn't have or have a lot of opportunity or time to really sort of develop or find their definitive story. Are, are there any characters like that? that you mean you like feel Gambit? Like, let's say like Gambit. What, well, yeah. I mean, what would you have done or if you ever had the opportunity to revisit a character well i uh, can't it's done i mean gambit's done there's nothing right. i can do about it at this point yeah um yeah i mean i think unilaterally aging kitty six years so just so she could jump into bed with pete wisdom was a was a fundamental mistake because see the problem is i came up i was taught by stan Stan created the whole concept of an integrated common universe. Everything related to everything else. What happened in the FF related to what could relate to what happened in uh, Iron Man or the Avengers or the X-Men because they were in the same world at the same place at pretty much the same time. This is where you have a moment where Thor gets into a taxi cab. And the cabbie says, "Why? Why are you in a cab?" Well, mortal, if the god of thunder could, sh the god of thunder could sh truly fly over uh, New York, with you know, on his hammer, by with with pulled by Mjolnir, but then you mortals, the mortals would look up and think, "Ah, the god of thunder is flying overhead. Something must be happening." But I do not wish to alarm you, so I will travel in this tiny human conveyance you know, so as not to alarm the locals. It, hokey, perhaps, but relevant? Yeah. God, these people relate to real people around them. The Avengers at the end of the first movie go out to have shawarma at this place that, that Tony knows. Find me the Justice League moment or even the, the, the Titans moment where they do something like that. You know, the thing about Marvel that won my heart when I was a kid and that, that I held to as long as I was able to is that they took place in the real world. 
that they, that things happened, that they had relationships outside the school for gifted youngsters, outside of, of whatever, uh, that real people mattered, real moments mattered. Rogue leaving a kiss on the, on the window of Air Force One, you know, um, is it hokey? Maybe. Is it stupid? Maybe. But she's a teenager. She's flying in a bathing suit. And it's Air Force One. When are you going to get the chance to, to kiss, you know, Ronald Reagan's airplane? <laughs> um, to me, then, that was a relevant, cool thing. Um, I see no fun in... I mean, Avengers Mansion being on Fifth Avenue across from Central Park was cool. Why? Because that you walked out the door and you were in the real world, um, which was different from Titan's Tower, which was out in New York Harbor, which wasn't really as accessible. And they're all kids. Um, the same goes with having your having your core characters living on a floating island zips around the world and, and popping out of trees everywhere. I mean, all they do is talk to themselves, talk to their own people. They're, they're in their own ghetto willingly. That to me doesn't seem like a, a potentially attractive way to create a link between the audience and the and the comic and the story and i guess my my ultimate point is that for better or worse the sales back in the day were stronger because we tried to do stories that had relevance to the audience not to one another of the creators we weren't writing sorry about this we weren't writing for the people who come to conventions. We were writing for the people who come to conventions plus everyone else. Because we, I, certainly I, I don't know about ever, I can't speak for the others, but that I think of my generation, I think that was the basic idea. The hope was that the people who come to conventions will share the books with everyone else and they will share the books with everyone else. And ultimately, Conventions that start with one or 2,000 people might end up bringing in 40 or 50 or 90 or 100 or 150 or God knows what, because they're fun. And the creepy thing, absolutely wonderful thing, is going to a convention and meeting, in my case, three generations of readers. I mean... My grandpa gave this comic to my dad. My dad gave it to me. This is really cool. I'm sorry. The impact of a moment like that, of, holy cow, your grandpa read the X-Men? Yeah, when he was a teenager. <laughs> That's cool. You know, having readers in Moscow, doing a signing in Moscow, Russia, not Idaho, though Idaho would be just as much fun, in tears over days of future past. 
Who'd have thought? I mean, that's extraordinary. That is remarkable. That is so, on one level, the beast in my brain is going, yes, I've got more. And the other half of me is going, holy cow, what have I done? They love this book. Oh, God, I've got to make the next one better. (laughs) No, but that's what I'm talking about. None of this should be an intellectual exercise. This is gut. But that's, that's what storytellers should try to do. You grab the audience by the heart and the guts. And you'd say, come on this ride. It, I'm going to do my best to, to sh- surprise the living dickens out of you. It'll be a great ride. I will not guarantee a happy ending. That's what made Dark Phoenix such a powerful story in its day. A, because no one had ever done anything like that before. Not, It's like, no, we're going to kill Superman, but we'll bring him back. Don't worry. No. She's dead. She's going to stay dead. Why? Because that's our pledge to the to you readers. We're not playing by the old rules. We're playing by the rules. The, we're playing by the reality rules. There is a risk. The characters know there is a risk. I mean, when Wolverine died, I was writing Nightcrawler. This is, what, seven years ago? Some ridiculous amount of time and we were all told you have to do a memorial for wolverine and the perfect idea popped into my head okay especially since the whole nightcrawler series grew out of the fact that everyone had just charged up to heaven and rescued him and brought him back i don't understand why the soul comes back and a body miraculously forms but that's just me um So over the course of the story, Rachel starts gathering X-Men. And we're come on, we're going to have a set of fire up on top of the hill. We're going to tell Wolverine stories. And the whole idea was to tell little three-page vignettes of Wolverine's history that I hadn't told yet. And I was hoping that gradually as you move through the story, actually, sorry, Nightcrawler is the one who does this. Kurt does this because his friend is dead and this is how we honor him. And I figured there's room for four or five stories. And I was hoping that the reader would gradually realize one significant linkage between all the storytellers. They've all died and been resurrected. And then at the end of the story, Rachel steps up and says, okay, we're going to have, we're going to start the raffle. How long till, how long till he comes back? And we're going, what? Come on. I did it. Kurt did it. He did it. That, that, Peter did it. You know, we've all been down this road before. How long till Logan? And Kurt's going, no, 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 no. Think about this, Rachel. You don't want to go down this road. Oh, come on. Why, why not? Everybody else, all the rest of us have. You, you don't get it. Don't get what? Where is he? Well, you know, upstairs. Yep. Who's with him? Everybody else. Think about it, Rachel. And there's like the penny drops. Oh, oh, which one of you morons wants to be the one to tell the redhead that we're taking her boyhead or boyfriend away? And it's like, huh? Yeah, Phoenix, one small step down from God, 
We don't want to piss her off. So they all step back and we'll just leave, you know, they'll be back when they're ready to. And the editor felt that was an inappropriate story. <laughs> wow. Jeez. Well, because see, in, in my vision of the omniverse, the way this all works is it all, it goes back to Kitty because everything all goes back to Kitty and the dragon. And long time ago, she was offered a job as guardian of forever and being an X-Men, she accepted forgetting of course, to read the fine print because it was really, really small. And now that she's been around the cycle three and a half times, she's realizing forever is a very real term. What happens at the end of forever? Well, you come, all the stars and all the omniverse have gone out, except one. All the planets are cold. The people are gone. There's only one little planet and one guy on this planet. He's been sitting there for a very, very long time waiting for the star to go out. And on one side is a door. And this is, this is where I'm being self, totally self-indulgent, as if I haven't been already. The other side, way down in the distance, is this little bump on the horizon. And if you walked over there, for a very, very, very long time, you would find the ruins of a TARDIS 100 miles high. And surrounding it is a fence. And on the fence is a big sign that says, property of the British Broadcasting Corporation, no trespassers allowed, parentheses, we mean you, Claremont. <laughs> so then you go back to the, the rock, and on the rock is a short Canadian. And every so often the door opens and Kitty comes out with a tray, and she and Logan have dinner. And then she goes home to where she lives, which is a tesseract on the other side of the door because she's the guardian of forever. And on the last day, as the sun's fading out, a light appears in the sky and it coalesces into the shape of the redhead and she lands. And as the star goes out, she and Logan pick up where they left off about four or five billion years earlier. And that's it for about seven seconds because they've been waiting a really long time. And because it's my fantasy, you hear the, the James Bond theme and whammo, light. And creation is reborn again. And we're off and running. Take my money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's, you know, that's my vision of eternity. And within the, and the interesting thing is, um, you know, I can outdo the watcher, but the, in, the interesting thing is everything ends up being different. Um, but I find it no more or less plausible than Moira being surprised. You thought I was Charlie's girlfriend. Now you've understand I am, I don't know, God. Okay. Um, and it'll, and the thing is, I'm sure her current iteration will be the last one until a writer comes along with a better idea or with an idea that is more that an editor likes. And then it'll be off and running in a totally different direction. Yeah. They're leaning hard into that new version of the X-Men. I mean, now they've, you know, what new version. Uh, well, they, the, what you're describing in terms of like uh, Moira being a much more significant character in the world of the X-Men and the current reboots and stuff like that. Uh, you know, I just, I, but, you know. 
what I find amusing is everyone saying, no, no, this doesn't invalidate your continuity, Chris. We're being true to your continuity. And I'm going, yeah, right. But that's, you know, but that, that has, I mean, Stan, I guess my, my problem is that, again, being taught by Stan, uh, his point was you were given these characters in trust. You get to play with them for a certain amount of time. And then you put them back on the shelf for the next guy or gal to pick up and play with. But the re- your responsibility then is to put them back in pretty much the same shape as you got them. So you start from the same equivalent position. My problem was I never got off the, I never gave them back. It's you not, added, no, I mean, yeah. No, no, yeah, I mean, not, no, my point was everyone usually lasts three years. I was, you know, 17, 16, going on 20. I, every time I thought about this is time to go, I'd come up with more ideas. Oh, but going back to Gambit, the original conception was that um, he's Mr. Sinister. The, the rationale being sinister is a mutant whose lifespan is well over a thousand years as you know, might be more. We never, I never codified it. The difference is he ages proportionately, which is why even though he was born in the 1850s, 1820s, at the time I, he was running around, I introduced him into the X-Men, which is the 1980s. He's only eight, six, seven years old. You know, he's brilliant. He's fully, he's fully developed sort of intellectually. He's a genius, but he's still a seven-year-old kid. And as I like to point out, this isn't DC. What respectable villain, especially if you're talking about the Marauders, is going to take orders from a seven-year-old? So he figures... I'll get around, and especially, how the hell are you going to get other villains to take you seriously? So, sinister is a is a simulacrum, and not an and well, a false face, an android. Right. Why does sinister look the way he looked? Because he's been designed by a seven year old kid. You twits. <laughs> no, everybody took him seriously. This is the way he looks. No, he's a kid villain. That's why he's got the. That's why he looks so kid-like. Yeah. And Sinister is the kid who was Scott's best friend at the orphanage. And anybody who got between him and Scott, he killed. Hmm. You know, and the idea was that Scott's leading the X-Men. The X-Men are becoming a more and more significant opponent. So what Sinister does is he clones himself. And Gambit is what Sinister will look like when he's in his 20s. And the whole idea was that he would introduce Gambit to the X-Men. And Gambit's target, his ultimate target, is Kitty. Because Kitty, at that point, was, for me, the core of the next generation. Um, and the Guardian forever. But that's a whole different thing. And the problem was, the longer, Sin- the longer Gambit's with the X-Men... You know, Aurora turns Aurora is his way into the team. Aurora, the kid, Kitty's the target. But the longer he stays with the team, the more he starts 
splintering apart from from his programming. It's like he he's he be, he he yields to the temptation of being, for want of a better term, good, or at least not so not so specifically evil in terms of his following Sinister's programming. He wants to find his own path. He may end up being just as mean and nasty, but he wants to do it on his own path. Um, yes, he'll, he'll, he'll seduce Kitty, but not because Sinister told him to, because he thinks it's cool. And who knows where that's going to lead. So that was the next great direction I was going to take the team. But then I got fired the first time. And um, everyone took him seriously as a grown-up. Which I find incredibly boring, but that's me. I mean, wasn't there, I remember some theorizing, and I'm just not sure where to place it chronologically, um, during one of the heavy storylines where Gambit was going to be, or maybe was even already revealed as sort of the traitor. Was it possibly Executioner song? Um, but there were sort of, I remember this, this sinister Gambit um, theorizing uh, during one of the storylines. No, that was X-Men the end if I was doing any of that. Hmm. We just didn't, but that was also the, only, the reason why every time he and Logan fought in the danger room, he won. He was supposed to be better than Logan. Hmm. Designed to be better than Logan. Because Logan was the most dangerous physical adversary in the team, at least as far as Sinister was concerned. But that's, you know, but that's, that's what happens. The, you know, I had it in my notes. I hadn't introduced any of this on paper, on printed paper. So when I left, it was gone. But that's what happens. I mean, you know, you have no way of controlling what works, what doesn't. I want to ask quickly, because there's a really excellent documentary about you that I saw on Amazon. And the thing that struck me most is the relationship with Anne Nascenti and Louise Simonson, the three of you, how well you work together to have people like that to bounce ideas off of. Mm-hmm. How important was that to have those people, uh, not only at Marvel, but, you know, in your corner to to really just work together with? Seminal. Yeah. I mean... Anne would sit there at her desk, sort of folded up in her chair, and Jim would Jim Shooter would loom over her. And it was literally, it was the Kong Godzilla staring down at the world moment. And then would just look up at him with these big eyes and just say, okay, really? And Jim would like be totally codswobbled because he knew he was being played, but he couldn't figure out a way to, you know, this cute little Sicilian. <laughs> and, you know, Anne would just nod politely. And then as soon as he left the room, we'd, we'd do what we were going to do. Yeah. And it's not that she was being disrespectful or anything. She, it was just she was generally a step ahead and smarter than everybody in the room, including me. Right. Which, I don't know, maybe she learned from Wheezy because Wheezy was definitely, was and is definitely the best there is, period. I mean, my my one big regret is that they never were able. She and Art were ne- Art Adams were never able to do the second Gambit series, the second Longshot series, 
that would have been fun to edit because yeah. that was the deal. I would, I would edit it. And I was just so looking forward to it because I wanted to see what she would come up with right. and what he would come up with. But I swiped him for the X-Men annual and new mutant special edition. And <laughs> so it, sometimes the temptation is irresistible, <laughs> especially with someone as visually gifted as, as art. Oh yeah. Uh, I'm going to ask a non-Marvel question. So I apologize, Mike and Oren. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, the work you did with Dark Horse, uh, specifically Alien versus Predator. Uh, Predator, mm-hmm. amazing. I mean, two characters as a you know a horror sci-fi lover as I am, uh, you know having the, they're just awesome characters, and to have them together in in one story um, is is just amazing. What is that like working on those two characters? Are you do you have to follow any type of, uh, you know, guidelines by both franchises or anything other than this is an alien, that's a predator, go? The whole pitch I made to, to, uh, to Dark Horse, to, um, oh, for God's sakes, I'm forgetting everything, was, I mean, I basically find alien predator boring, but I thought, what if we did them as heroes? What if you took a basic alien predator story and made the alien and the predator, the good guy. And then my argument was, well, we need someone who we can relate to. Therefore we'll need a a third character, a human. Mm -hmm. But if, if the, the corporate owners get to have the copyright on alien and predator, I want the copyright on, on Ash, my character. So that was the deal we cut. And it was fun because A, you had to come up with an adversary. I had to come up with an adversary who was clearly impressive in and of their own right. Mm -hmm. And clearly something that the alien and the predator should be scared of and then figure out how to get them, get them there and get everyone away happily at the end. So that was what we ended up doing. And then of course, introducing the human equivalent of the predators who would be the viewpoint characters and, you know, killing off my, my, my character two or three times in the course of the, of the whole uh, mini series, just because I could. <laughs> I just have oh, one last question for you is last. Oh no. I'm sorry. <laughs> I want to be mindful of your time. Um, but were you at the time where you took over X-Men, if let's say in a, a different world, you were offered Avengers or let's say Justice League, where they're more established characters, kind of cornerstone characters. Do you think you would have taken as many risks writing those books as you do with X-Men? Or do you think you'd have to stay a little more? Oh, no, that, but that's the whole point. Yeah. I, my, the moment where, Len left and I grabbed the book, literally. Right. Um, is one of those once in a lifetime moments mm. that could not happen anywhere else in Marvel and I don't think could happen since. Bear in mind, this is 1974. 
The Marvel Universe has been in existence for a decade plus. There, you know, FF exists, Avengers exist, Spidey exists, Thor, Iron Man, the whole nine yards. Everybody exists. Stan's written them all. How the hell are you going to argue with Stan and Jack on anything? Um, and then they've 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 also now at that point been written by equally seminal writers since uh, Jerry Conway, Death of Gwen Stacy, uh, Len. You know, um, you no matter how brilliant you want to be, you are stepping into a canon that has been significantly defined and shaped by your predecessors, except for X-Men. Stan and Jack did their 10, 12 issues, then they moved on. You had three or four issues by, um, uh, uh, Dave Cochran. No, 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 no. This is Before, back in the middle. Right. Um, Steranko. Oh, okay. Sorry. You had the three or four issues with Steranko uh, where you introduce Lorna as um, Magneto's daughter, you know, as uh, Magneto's daughter. Then you have Roy and, and Neil's seminal nine issues. And that's it. Right. There's never been any lasting arc beyond the moments of uh, that. I mean, if I'd taken over the original five, if that, that had been the new X-Men, no matter what I did, I'd have to measure myself against Steranko and, and Neil, Roy and Neil, not to mention Stan and, you know, Stan and Jack. But the whole point of the new X-Men was Stan wanted to try something new. We wanted he wanted to see if we could attract a more global audience. So first thing we do is get rid of the the original cast, who, like all the original casts of all the Marvel magazines except for the Black Panther, are all white, middle class, remarkably North European, mm-hmm. no Italians, no French. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were the bad guys. Um. Well, it was Westchester. Sorry, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm saying it is Westchester. I mean, yeah. well, Westchester yeah. is where they're located. <laughs> that was a dig on our neighborhood. But, talking. I mean, but think of it. I had, I mean, Scott existed, Charlie existed, um, Logan existed for one issue. Uh, otherwise, Storm, Nightcrawler. Colossus, Thunderbird, they were all brand new. Nothing other than their their basics had been established in Giant Size 1. It was a it was virgin territory. So from a creative standpoint, from a writing standpoint, it's like holy cow. And that's why, you know, and it was a chance to work with Dave Cochran. And even with all the stuff that had been established on paper, Len's conception of Logan was that he was a punk, you know, a 20-year-old at that in, in the Canadian Armed Forces. And the, the claws were part of the gloves, not his body. His only power was his healing factor. And the thing with Dave was, psh, 
Mr. Imagination. It was like his his reaction was no, that's that's dull for him. So like when we were when we were structuring out ninety seven or ninety eight, structure it must have been ninety seven because we introduced it in ninety eight. He had a sketch on the back of a page of a hand, a clenched fist, with a claw coming out of the hand. And I remember looking at it and going, Ugh, what's this? I think it'd be more fun for Logan, for sorry, more fun for Wolverine if the claws were part of his body. And it was like, ew, wow, that's cool. <laughs> um, and we went with it. And the rest, as they say, is history. Things, because we had no past and no future in the terms of sales expectations, no one was paying attention to what we were doing. So we did what we wanted. We had, you know, hey, we're going to give Wolverine claws and have the other characters react. And boom, you have claws. They're part of you. Gene says, you know, yeah, you never told us, you never asked. And suddenly, bingo, his character right there. Um, oh, yes. And then they, you know, we were told, oh, by the way, you have a hundredth issue in three issues. You got to do something. What do you mean? Do something memorable. Okay. And it's like, even though we'd just written Gene out of the comic in 95, uh, 94, sorry, she left as a Republican and came back in 97 as a normal human being drawn by Dave, in other words, a hottie. <laughs> and then just when you thought you could take her for granted, I'll be the only one to fly the shuttle back to Earth. And guess what happens next? Right. Amazing. And the rest, as they say, is history. But, you know, the whole point, we, Dave and I were planting the seeds of Dark Phoenix right from the start. It's like, she died. She brought herself back. Or did she? Or now she has the power of Phoenix. Well, what does a Phoenix do? It rises from the death, from its death, and recreates reality. Well, that gives you all of her dimension, so to speak. And what's the first thing she does as Phoenix? She saves creation. What's the second thing? She destroys it yeah. or tries to. You know, it's like the gloves came off and with them coming off, all bets went with them. And that became the dynamic of the X canon ever since from that point on. Um, you couldn't, I don't think, I couldn't see a way to do it with Avengers or with the FF, but that was what made my taking over the FF in 98 so much fun. I didn't have to worry about anything. I mean, Stan did it. Stan did it better than everybody. Fine. So Salva and I can have fun. <laughs> you know, we could just tell really cool or what we hoped were really cool FF stories where I could throw in ridiculous amounts of imagination mm -hmm. where I could, you know, play with the stupid reality of you know, um, Franklin being six years old and his kid sister being 18 
<laughs> and take it from there. Right. Valeria, you know, it's, it's like, and then Jean have a, sorry. Then Sue having to deal with mom. Wait, you are my daughter. Yes. But you're Valeria Von Doom. Yes. My mom is the Baroness Von Doom, but your mom is me. Yes. No. Yes. And then of course, we do the storyline where she becomes the Baroness von Doom. Right. You know, it's, it's for me, the FF was just, Oh, let's throw everything at the ceiling and see what sticks right. and then have fun with it. The, whereas the X-Men was just, this is life. Mm-hmm. This is my life. We're just going to play with it and see what I can get away with and how far I can go. Right. And every time I thought I'd, run out of gas, Wheezy would say, well, what about this and this and this? And I, oh, yeah. And Anne would do the same thing. And, you know, it just, they were all too much fun. And they were all, they were all my friends. (laughs) And I didn't really like letting anyone else play with them because it wasn't, because I'd read the stories and they weren't right. And I didn't want to get upset with people so i just tried my best to ignore it but i wanted you know they were embarrassing as it is to admit my my family way back then oh yeah 100% and um you know the again the thing you know warren wanting kitty to be 20 in her twenties. So she could have sex with, with, with Pete wisdom. Whereas for me as a creator, adolescence is the most fertile ground imaginable for characters to be presented in, because that's where everything, at least bearing in mind, this is the eighties, all things are possible. And because you're a kid, you get a do over. Mm -hmm. If you slip, Everyone said, oh, okay, you're just a teenager or a young girl or a young guy. We'll give you another chance. Obviously, the 90s and the aughts and the teens, now the 20s, that rationale is less plausible, sadly. But that was the fun. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a, the whole rest of creation to play with them as adults. But by the time, you know, Scott was already locked into his character. There's nothing you could do about that. So he was, in some respects, less fun. But that's why I, that was the whole point of the Madeline thing, to tell the audience, Gene is dead. Gene is dead. Scott's moved on. Yes, he's moved on in a, in a, a totally melodramatic uh, manner, look, my the woman I've fallen in love with is a dead ringer for my dead girlfriend. <laughs> like, oh, come on. Haven't, you know, that didn't happen on Dallas. All right. <laughs> <laughs> What's his face? Ewing wakes up and goes, wow, that was the craziest dream I ever had. <laughs> and thereby, you explain the whole year and a half with another guy playing your role. Right. Bobby Ewing. Sorry. Yeah. But it's the problem was 
I was writing a book. And again, this is the comics code. We couldn't do things and say things directly. We could play. We had to think twice. We had to suggest things that a 20 or a 30 year old reader would know. Oh, that's what's happening. But a 16 year old or an eight year old wouldn't, at least back then. You had to think, you had to plan, you had to play. Whereas to just say, I want so and so to have sex with such and such. Okay. <laughs> what now? You know? I mean, it's sort of like where's the fun? And to me, comics should be fun. Um, it's FF 49. It's like Galactus has shown up, he's kicked the FF's butt, and the splash page is Reed going, huh, what are you going to do, Reed? The world's coming to an end. Well, I'm going to go have a shower and a shave. What? Look, if the world's coming to an end, I want to look my best. And while I'm having the shower and a shave, I'll think about a way to beat Galactus. But on one level, you think that's the dumbest thing. On the other level, it's like, that's really kind of cool. Right. You know, he's, he's, he's a grown up. He's a guy with white in his hair. He's like 50. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so he's dealing with it as a grown up, not yeah. as a kid. Um, that's, that's what you get to play with if you do it right. And to me, it's playing. It's fun. It's exciting. If I have fun, hopefully the readers will have fun. If the readers have fun, they'll hopefully come back and read the next issue. Why don't, um, could you tell our folks out there um, where they can find you on social? And then if there's yeah. anything new and recent you want to give a I, plug. Uh, on Instagram, I'm Chris Clear Mountain, And I try to post as frequently as I can. The only problem is I need to find a really cool picture to justify it. So, but that's where I try to spend most of my time talking about stuff. I'm also on Facebook, God help me. And um, you can reach me at my website, uh, chrisclamont.com, which is, which will list all current, you know, where, A, what I'm doing, B, where I'm, what where I'm going in terms of conventions and the like. Well, thank I want to Chris. Yeah, I thank you because this has been awesome, <laughs> absolutely fantastic. So that was our Chris Claremont interview. What I tell you, interesting, right? I mean, look, we could have spoken to him for hours. And as always, you know, before we speak to anyone, we have a list of questions. We we do some preparation, and uh, that preparation went right out the window. Uh, you know, he covered so much stuff. We really couldn't find any ins of when to ask this question, but that's not a bad thing. Uh, I mean, he could have just gone on for hours. Thing that jumped out at me the most is you want something. If there's something you want answered, ask it. And he would have told us anything. Yeah. It's one of those interviews where like, I'll, I'll, I'll send him flowers. I'll, I'll send cupcakes, donuts, Anything to get him back on again, because yeah. there's so much more um, to talk about. Just just to spend time with the guy. Like how many 
people can say, hey, we got to spend two hours chatting with Chris Claremont. Uh, it's, it's, it's bucket list stuff. We could have, yeah, I, I would love to have him two or three more times, um, get a few more questions in and get some more, uh, some more of his insights and stories. So we'll work on that for you guys. But um, uh, at least we got this gem uh, of an interview and hopefully, you know, we'll get him back. And if not, we have plenty of other folks, uh, coming up that I think you guys are going to be, uh, pleasantly surprised by. So, uh, without further ado, as always, um, please find us on uh, podcast. If you're watching this on a video, all the podcast platform, Apple, uh, Spotify, um, Amazon, and of course, if you're listening to us, we also have a YouTube channel. So please visit us there. Just search in the YouTube search bar. And of course, we're on social. So check us out at DB Bandits on Twitter or Dollar Bin Bandits on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you all. Without you, we don't go. So please come back for more. The Dollar Bin Bandits are Oren Phillips, Joe Marcello, and Mike Farah. New episodes release every Wednesday and Friday. You can find us on all the socials at Dollar Bin Bandits on Facebook and Instagram at DB Bandits on X. For more super nerdy discourse, join the Dollar Bin Banter group on Facebook. You can email us at dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this episode. It's the easiest and most helpful way to grow the show. Looking for merch? Search us up on TeePublic. And if you want to support what we do, smash that support button on our website, dollarbinbandits.buzzsprout.com. Thank you to Sean McMillan for our graphics and Pat McGrath for our logo. Thank you to our friends at Tomorrow's Publishing, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, banditos.